Well, good morning. Welcome to First Free. My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you've joined us in worship here this morning. Hope you've had a wonderful Christmas season celebrating the birth of our Savior. And uh, let me wish you an early, happy new year. Well, we've been walking. Thank you. Hey, the first service didn't do that. You guys are awake. <laughs> uh, well, we've been walking through the book of Acts for over a year now, which I have really enjoyed. Uh, but Pastor Adam gave me the option this morning of continuing in Acts or doing sort of a standalone sermon. And as much fun as it might be to talk about the riot in Ephesus, I didn't think that was the best way to close out the year. Adam, I'll let you handle that next week, okay? Spoiler alert. Um, but if you guys were here over the summer when Adam was out on sabbatical, if you remember, we had several guest speakers come in and share their verse that changed everything. Who is here and remembers those messages? Yeah, I love those. I always love hearing people's stories. Well, I was scheduled to speak then too, but then we had the opportunity to hear from Dr. Isla Tassi, and so I gladly gave up my spot. I mean, hearing from someone who's leading one of the largest disciple-making movements on an entire continent was probably a little bit more valuable to all of us, right? Well, this morning, I'm gonna throw back to that series and share a little bit of my story. I mean, who doesn't like to talk about themselves, right? But you know, it's really not my story. You know, when you or I share our stories, our testimonies, it's really God's story, right? How he worked in and through us. And for those of you who have been through Rooted, you remember that sharing our testimony was a big part of that experience. And what we learned in Rooted was how to structure it a little bit better and make it much more about God. You know, I heard a pastor once say, if Jesus isn't the star of your testimony, you're probably telling it wrong. And I've always loved that. And truly, the, the verse that changed everything for me has much more to do with other people and how God used them in my life. And that verse is 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. It says, and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Or I memorized it in the NIV. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Well, let's pray and then we'll dive into how God has used this verse in my life. Father God, we thank you for this time this morning when we can gather in your, your house with your people and, and hear from your words and praises to you. Lord, I pray that you would give me the words to say. I pray that you would give all of us ears to hear and that everything we do here today is to bring glory to Jesus. We praise you in his name, amen. Well, now maybe you've heard the saying, or if not, I'll share it with you now, never read a Bible verse. Now that comes from uh, Greg Kokel, who's a Christian apologist, and the point that he's trying to make in a clever way is that when we read a verse by itself with no context, that's often how uh, scripture gets misunderstood or worse, gets twisted. I mean, I think that's probably why Philippians 4.13, did you know that's one of the top two tattooed, top two tattooed, did I say that right? Top two tattooed Bible verses? But you know, it's all over athletes, for instance. But I don't think I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me it has much to do with dunking a basketball or throwing a touchdown. Or let me contextualize that for St. Louis. I don't think it has much to do with hitting a home run or scoring a goal, right? And Coco follows up his advice with always read a paragraph at least. Now, the verse that I'm sharing here this morning is pretty straightforward in and of itself, so let me just um, summarize the context for time's sake. This is Paul writing here, and in 1 Corinthians 10, he had warned them to not actively engage in the idolatry that was all around them. But then he followed that up with, much like in Romans 14, telling them not to judge others, whether it's fellow believers or not, who eat the food that's been sacrificed to idols. And particularly as they're trying to win unbelievers. You know, to use our undivided language around here, these are conviction issues that are not worth judging others and dividing over. And then he gives them the example of how he personally handles this. In 1 Corinthians 10, he writes, I too try to please everyone in everything that I do, 
I don't just do what is best for me, but I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. Which is really a repeat of 1 Corinthians 9, 22. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And Paul had been with the Corinthians for around 18 months, so they had personally seen how did he live this out. Now, a lot of the rest of this context here isn't specifically relevant for this morning. So let's look at the larger biblical context because Paul encouraging others to follow his examples is pretty common in his writings. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 4, he wrote this. I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children. For even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you've only had one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you. And so I urge you to imitate me. And that is why I've sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of how I follow Christ Jesus, just as I teach in all the churches wherever I go. And also in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Thessalonians 4, he writes, we never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. And then much like 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Philippians 3.17 is really succinct. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Now, Paul is only confident in giving himself as an example to follow because he knows he's following Christ, which he mentions several times. And so he's ultimately pointing beyond himself to Jesus. And to me, that's what discipleship boils down to. You know, I don't wanna oversimplify what it is, but I also think we've done a great deal to overcomplicate what discipleship is. To me, a pretty simple definition is following Jesus and inviting others along to follow along with you or making sure you're following someone like a Paul that you know is following Jesus and is inviting you to grow along with them. And that's where we come to my story as it relates to this verse and how God has used people like a Paul in my life to point me to Jesus and to help me to grow, which is why I now have such a passion for discipleship. So I grew up in a little cow town in the middle of nowhere, north central Missouri. Anybody know where Milan, Missouri is? There's one hand. I didn't, I didn't expect to see very many. And, and my parents divorced when I was seven. And then my dad lived in Minnesota about 400 miles away from us for most of the rest of my life. But you know, we really had one of the best divorced family situations because my parents worked really hard to get along and to stay on the same page with how they raised us. And we were a church-going family. So whether we were with mom or with dad, we went to church on most Sundays and Sunday school, youth group, things like that. But I say that we're a church-going family intentionally rather than a Christian family because Jesus pretty much stayed at church. You know, I don't remember our parents reading the Bible to us growing up, for instance, and we might pray before some meals, particularly the big ones that we just came out of, you know, Christmas and Thanksgiving. But otherwise, my parents weren't really living that Paul example for us. And so my faith as a kid wasn't very deep. It wasn't very personal. It was more of a you know, check the box thing. And so when I became a teenager, you know, getting into junior high and middle school and, and into those high school years and the world came calling and I started hearing about things like going to parties and drinking, chasing girls, sex, causing trouble, those kinds of things. Honestly, all that stuff really appealed to me. And I've always had kind of a high hypocrite meter. And what I mean by that is there were some of us who were going to church on Sundays in youth group, but we'd see each other at these parties other nights. And so acting one way on Sunday and another way the rest of the week. And I knew I didn't wanna keep doing that. And so I had a choice to make. And unfortunately, I chose to dive headlong after the world. And I got a job at our little hometown grocery store where I worked most weekends. That way I didn't even have to hear the guilt trip about church anymore. And so Jesus would have to wait. I had a totally different way that I wanted to live my life. 
And I did just that. I lived very rebelliously for many years. I got into a lot of trouble throughout high school and into college, you know, the kind of trouble where the police get involved. And for instance, I had my license revoked for pretty much all of my freshman year of college, you know, just making a lot of bad choices. And being this wild party guy really became my identity. I loved that everybody knew that's who I was, except for the adults. I still cared what some of the adults thought about me, so I always tried to do well, like in school, get good grades, and I always have a good job. That way they didn't look down on me too much. And, and really those good things were a way that I felt a little bit better about all the bad stuff that I was doing. But I lived that way really for far too long, into my late 20s. But I remember waking up one day, I was like 27 years old, and surveying my life and just thinking, man, this is not where I should be. This is not even where I wanted to be at this point in my life. Now, many of my friends were, were getting married, starting families, they're progressing in their careers, and I had a, a decent job, but otherwise not much else to speak of. I'd, I'd left a trail of just disastrous relationships, including a failed engagement in my wake. And I also had to honestly look myself in the mirror and admit that I'm no longer just this party guy. I have a real problem with alcohol. And alcoholism is something that runs in my family. My, my parents divorced because of my dad's alcoholism. And we can look back at least four generations and see that. And now here I was. And something needed to change for me. The way I was living wasn't working. Well, then one of my favorite Bible verses proved true. Proverbs 22, six says, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. And while my parents hadn't truly discipled me as a child, they had made church a priority. And I remembered that. And by this time, my dad was living a more true Christian life. He'd, he'd gotten sober, and praise God to this day, he's 37 years sober, and he was trying to talk to me about that and talk to me about Jesus. And my younger brother was a Christian by that time, and I had to admit, man, he's a better man than I am. And I attributed that to him going to church. And so I thought, okay, I'll give church a try. And I drove past this church. I was living in Kansas City at this time, Legacy Christian Church. I drove past it every day, and I said, okay, that's where I'm gonna go. And it was my New Year's resolution for January of 2007. And I gave it a pretty half-hearted effort. I mean, I went whenever I felt like it, when I wasn't too hungover, when I didn't have something better to do. And about six or eight months in, I remember thinking, well, this church thing isn't working either. But praise God, one of the pastors got a hold of me about that time. And he invited me to like a new members class and then out to lunch afterwards. And we just had a wonderful discussion. And he shared the gospel with me in a way that finally made sense. And he helped me to see two things. One was that I was living just like I'd grown up. I was treating Jesus like an hour on Sunday thing and then just leaving him there. But what I needed to do was develop this daily relationship with Jesus rather than just checking the church box. And he also helped me to see that I was carrying a lot of guilt for the way that I'd been living. And I felt like I needed to clean my life up first before I could give it over to Jesus. But he helped me to first of all realize, well, that's not true. It's not even possible, right? We're never good enough on our own. But you know what? Jesus came for us anyway. Jesus accepts you right where you are, your mess and all. And then once you surrender your life over him, to him, he gives you the gift of his Holy Spirit, which is what empowers any real life change anyway. And then you have his word and the body of Christ around you to help you live it out and grow. And so by God's grace, it just clicked for me then. And a couple weeks later, I stepped forward on a Sunday morning, proclaiming my faith in Jesus, surrendering my life to him. I was baptized right then and there. And my family, I'd told them about it. So they were there to be able to celebrate with me. It was just a wonderful day. And then that very next night, I joined my first small group and, and started to see God's provision for me. Although at first, I'll admit, I didn't think he knew what he was doing. So I had gone a couple weeks before to a, like a group's connection kind of a thing and met several different leaders and the group that I ended up in where God put me was with a group of people that were about my same age, 
but the vast majority were married couples. And other than one guy, they were all, they'd all grown up in church their whole life. And so I'm thinking, well, they're not gonna get me. They don't, we don't have anything in common. But what I found was a, a group of welcoming people who didn't pretend like their lives were all together. They weren't perfect because they'd grown up in church. You know, they were all very real and transparent. They were regularly talking about you know, struggles in their marriage or bad attitudes with coworkers or other sin issues. And while my sin might be different from theirs, we were all sinners. We were all in the same place. We needed God's grace. And the way to grow out of that was to be real, to be open about our sin and talk about it in light of scripture and be there to pray for one another and to encourage one another. That group lived out true discipleship. And the couple that led that group, Isaiah and Carrie in particular, they're still dear friends of mine to this day. They really took me under their wing. I tell people all the time, they didn't just invite me into their group, they invited me into their lives. And that reminds me of, of one of my favorite quotes from a discipleship conference I went to once, though I can never remember who said this. But he said, the church has done a pretty good job of teaching people how to share their faith, but not as good of a job on how to share their life. You know, one of my favorite leading voices in discipleship, I follow a lot of discipleship.org stuff. They, they talk a lot about Jesus-style disciple-making. And Jim Putman is one of those guys. And, and he said this, we can't divorce the teachings of Jesus from the methods of Jesus yet respect the results of Jesus. And you know, we spend a lot of time discussing the teachings of Jesus, whether it be here on Sunday mornings or in Sunday school, Bible studies, small groups, but too often we leave it there as at the discussion. And yet what Jesus did was what some people call life-on-life -life discipleship, right? I like the term disciple-making. If you examine Jesus's life, which by the way, one of my favorite books that does this is called The Master Plan of Evangelism. I gave this book out to all of our leaders last year. It's such a great read. It's like 60 years old now, so it stood the test of time. And in it, what Dr. Coleman does is examines the gospels and just looks at what did Jesus do? How did he live his life? And what you'll find is that while he did teach to crowds like this, it was just on rare occasions. A much bigger percentage of his life was spent life on life. He spent time, he spent his life with the 12. And in fact, Jesus' original invitation to his disciples sounded very similar to Paul's. He just didn't have to point beyond himself, right? In Matthew 4, 19, he says, come follow me. And in Mark's account of, of Jesus calling the 12, we get kind of a glimpse into what was his method. In Mark 3, it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those that he wanted, and they came to him. Remember, Jesus had more than just 12 disciples. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So Jesus' method was to share his life with people, to be with his disciples. And Paul would later follow suit. I love this verse from 1 Thessalonians 2. It says, we loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. And so Jesus and on down through Paul and beyond lived this life on life discipleship. And what this looked like for me in that first group was a high level of intentionality from my group leaders. Our group went well beyond just the hour of gathered study time. Isaiah and Carrie regularly invited me into their home or out for coffee or other activities, as did others in the group. And here's why that was so important for me. Because yes, I was getting a lot out of our Bible study time, but it was the first time I'd ever studied my Bible. And so I had no idea, what does this look like to live it out? But by being around those who were doing it, I got to observe how they lived it out. I got to watch their example. And so let me give you just a couple of examples that have really stuck with me. So for instance, we read in Ephesians, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. 
Well, I can tell you the first time that I read that, it didn't sound very realistic to me. Now, keep in mind, I'd spent a lot of time in bars that are full of unwholesome talk. But still, I'm thinking, really, none? And yet, I started spending time with the guys in this group. And of course, nobody's swearing in group time, right? I'm talking about outside of group, you know, going out for coffee, going out to ball games. And I pretty quickly realized, okay, these guys don't talk like me. They're not dropping four-letter words every five minutes. They're not telling dirty jokes to be funny. Or Isaiah, he liked to disc golf, and he would invite me along a lot, and I, even though I had no idea what I was doing. And so I'd throw an errant shot off into a tree somewhere and drop one of those four-letter words, and he'd just kind of look at me, and not judgmentally, but just like, hey, Nick, we don't need that. Or, or another time, Isaiah and Carrie had invited me out for coffee. And as we're standing in line at the, at, at the coffee place, he said something to her that even as the single guy, I'm like, oh, buddy, you just messed up. And of course, she gets upset and, and walks off, and I watch him just politely excuse himself, get out of line, go talk to his wife, clearly apologizing. They make up, come back in line, we go about our night. Now, that might not sound like much to you. And in fact, I've used this story before and asked their permission. They don't even remember this. But I can tell you, it was significant for me. Because where I was at that point in my life and the relationships that I had had, that would have been a gigantic blow up that would have ruined the night for everybody, I promise you. First of all, my attitude would have been like, hey, don't you embarrass me in front of my friend. Now, no wonder I'm still single then, right? <laughs> but think about all of the scripture I got to observe being lived out in that moment. I got to watch somebody humble themselves. I got to watch how we um, quickly apologize and seek forgiveness when we've wronged someone. I got to watch how we quickly forgive and, and go, about, go about without bitterness. Also from Ephesians, I got to watch husbands love your wives, now, I know those don't sound like major examples, and I have a couple of major examples, but I can confidently tell you that I learned as much, if not more, during that life-on-lifetime outside of group as I did during the Bible study time, at least the practicality of how to live it out. You know, one of my favorite quotes from that master plan book I mentioned talks about how Jesus did this. He says, Jesus did not work up teaching situations, but merely took advantage of those around him, and thus his teaching seemed perfectly realistic. He let the truth call attention to itself, not to the presentation. And later he says, one lived out sermon is worth a hundred explanations. And I would absolutely agree. You know, I was only in that group for, for less than two years, but those people, God used them to grow me in a way that I am forever grateful for. I got to follow their example as they followed the example of Christ. Well, then in late 2008, with that recession, I lost my job there in the Kansas City area, but, but God provided a, a new job really pretty soon and actually re required a move here to St. Louis. And it was so hard to leave that first church, to leave that first group. But God was faithful. He led me to another good church, another good group. My younger brother and I ended up living together around that time. And we were both still single, you know, fairly young Christians. And yet God puts us in this men's group that is mostly guys that are at least our dad's age and older. So again, a seeming misfit. But would you entertain a, a group's pastor rabbit trail for just a second here? Because most often when I'm talking to people who are looking to get into groups or groups that are looking to add people, we all wanna be around people who are just like us, right? With the same demographic, same age range, you know, singles with singles, marrieds together, uh, people with young kids, older kids, whatever. And please hear me, I'm not saying that that's totally wrong. But by keeping an open mind, I got to experience two amazing groups that have impacted my life in a way that still sticks today. And I truly believe these groups were God-directed. I've had such great groups experiences throughout my walk with the Lord. But I know now that I've served in groups ministry for several years that that's not always the case. 
I know there are some of you out there who've had hard or even hurtful group or, or church experiences. And can I just say I'm sorry for that? But can I also encourage you to, to keep trying and, and maybe keep a more open mind on what group might fit best for you? You know, I'd love to see some more diversity in our groups, some intergenerational groups. You know, Paul talks about that in Titus, about older generation discipling younger generations. And, you know, particularly here on Sunday mornings or in men's and women's group spaces, those are great places for some of those intergenerational groups. Because my brother and I would tell you that was one of our favorite groups we were ever in. You know, here we are, not even 30, we hadn't yet met our wives, and yet we're wanting to learn what does it look like to be a Christian husband? What's it gonna look like to be a Christian father someday? How do, how do I become a leader in the church? We weren't gonna learn that from our peers. We needed to learn that from people who had been there and done that, from men who were living it out. And again, this was a group that did a very good job about doing life together beyond just the hour of gathered Bible study time. We got to observe how these men lived their faith, to follow their example as they followed the example of Jesus. Well, let me speed this up a little bit. Um, not long after that, I met my wife. We got married. We settled out in St. Charles. Sorry, honey, that's a really quick recap of a very important part of my life. Just not relevant for the story this morning. Um, <laughs> we started attending Harvester in a small group together and uh, really enjoyed that, and then pretty soon we were invited to lead a group. And we were both hesitant, but we felt like this is something God is calling us to do, and so we, we jumped in and we just loved it. We got to lead that group for about four years, and we got to learn the, the ins and the outs, the ups and the downs, the, the good and the bad of being group leaders. And then I was invited to help with, we were doing this on-campus groups launch, and they invited me to come and help be a part of that, be kind of the lead coach for that. And we were also doing a new group leadership training program. They invited me to be a part of the pilot group and then go and, and be a trainer myself. And again, I was hesitant, but this time it was mostly because that meant we'd have to leave this group that we'd been leading. You know, we, we had been walking with these people, built these deep relationships and grown together side by side as we walked with the Lord. Could we really leave that? But that's when another one of my favorite Bible verses, particularly as it relates to discipleship and disciple making, uh, came up. I love 2 Timothy 2.2. It says, you have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Now again, let's discuss the context. We know from having walked through the book of Acts that Paul first meets Timothy and his second missionary journey through Lystra, Lystra, however you pronounce that. That's back in Acts 16. And Timothy had been brought up in the faith, at least the Jewish faith, by his mother and grandmother. But his father was Greek, and so Paul becomes like this spiritual father to Timothy, much like he'd written he was to the Corinthians. He was teaching Timothy all about Jesus. And from there, we can observe about a 15-year relationship between Paul and Timothy. Timothy joins Paul on the mission field. Or Timothy is mentioned in many of Paul's letters in Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Philemon. And then Paul writes two letters specifically to Timothy. At one point, they spent nearly three years together at Ephesus before Paul leaves Timothy there to lead the church. And Paul's relationship with Timothy looks very similar to what Jesus and his disciples walked out. They, they did life together. They did ministry side by side. And so they developed this deep relationship, so much so that Paul calls Timothy his son in the faith many times. And yet the relationship wasn't the ultimate thing. I'm sure Paul felt the tension or a relational tug when he left Timothy behind, but the mission was the ultimate thing. So Paul was willing to release Timothy there and keep the gospel moving forward himself elsewhere. And now he's encouraging Timothy to keep it moving forward as well. 
not in the exact same way. Paul was clearly more of a, a missionary, whereas Timothy's more of a pastor, not that they use those titles, but Paul's encouraging Timothy to keep making disciples and raise up more disciple makers who can go multiply themselves. And that's really still our call to this day. And we're not called to gather in our little huddles and, and hold tightly to our relationships and our faith, and, but we're called to go and multiply, to make disciples as Jesus commissioned us and to make disciples who can multiply themselves as well. And I could talk about this for an hour, but I, I won't. I'd, I'd rather just encourage you, if you're interested in, in disciple making, go back and listen to what Dr. Isla said over the summer, what they're doing in Kenya, right, Jim and Barb? I mean, it's an amazing multiplying disciple making movement. But let's get back to where I was. So here, I, I felt this relational tug and intention of leaving our group, but I also felt like, okay, God's calling me to this. He's stretching me a bit here. And so I jumped in and, and once again, I just loved it. I got to be a part of a fruitful, multiplying, disciple-making mission. And within a year, we had 30 groups meeting there on, at the church, and we'd trained dozens of leaders. And every step that God called me to take, he was there for me. And he kept putting people in my life, great people around me to help me, those whose example I could follow as they followed the example of Christ. And this was one of my favorite times of ministry. It was actually before I was in vocational ministry. We had this team of uh, the discipleship pastor, the group's pastor, and then there were four of us who were lay leader coaches. And we'd meet monthly and talk about our own personal walk with the Lord and encourage one another in that and, and talk about the group leaders we were discipling. How can we pass these things on to them and help them solve any issues that were going on in their groups? I really felt like we we're living out this 2 Timothy 2.2 call. The pastors were discipling us coaches. We were discipling the group leaders who were discipling their people. It was awesome. And about that time, I started to feel like, well, this is something maybe God has gifted me in and maybe he's calling me into ministry. And that's a whole other story that I don't have time to fully get into here today. But once again, I sort of at first argued with God or I tried to think, hey, this is not, this is crazy. I'm not worthy of this. I'm not good enough. I don't know enough to become a pastor. But another one of my favorite Bible verses came up at this time. So maybe this is more than just a, the verse that changed everything, but several verses that changed everything. Acts 4.13, it says, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. But they also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. I love the NIV translation here. It calls them unschooled ordinary men. Again, let's look at the context. Peter and John had first been thrown into jail and then drugged before these religious leaders for spreading the gospel and making disciples of Jesus. And this council sternly warns them to stop. Peter gives this bold response, ending with their salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. And the members of this religious council who are used to people listening and obeying them were taken aback. They're just amazed here. And notice this phrase again. They were amazed that these men had been with Jesus. This knowledge that they had, this boldness they now had, came from their time with Jesus, from his life-on-life -life investment in them. And I feel much the same. I'm not a seminary grad. I'm just an ordinary, unschooled man who, who tries to be with Jesus. And by his grace, he's put people around me who have discipled me, men that I know, people I know that have been following his example and are encouraging me to come along. And so with a lot of prayer and the encouragement of my wife and a couple of those mentors and some Bible college classes, a couple years later, they invited me to, to join the staff at that church. And actually, of the four of us coaches, two ended up on staff and two later became elders. 
And that's not to say that that's the pinnacle or anything, but just an example of the growth that can happen when we give this true life-on-life disciple-making. Now, hopefully you can tell I'm, I'm passionate about this. I love discipleship, disciple-making. I want others to experience the same thing. And I've been serving on the staff here at First Free for about two and a half years, so, and now I'd just like to spend a few minutes talking to you as, as your group's pastor, tell you a little bit about the ministry here. You know, several things we have that fall under group's ministry. We have Sunday morning groups, which are a lot like Sunday school. You know, it's a larger group that meets here at the church, 20 to 40 or more people. We have small groups that often meet in people's homes with 10 to 12 people. We have men's and women's groups. Perhaps you've seen the women's Bible study table out there in the lobby. Both the men's and the women's studies kick off again in January. I hope some of those leaders are in here so I get credit for mentioning this in the sermon, by the way. We also have life transformation groups. Uh, some churches call these um, D groups or discipleship groups. They're gender specific. They're men with men, women with women. They're, they're smaller. They're three to five people. And they have really a more intense focus on getting into scripture. The Bible is our curriculum and living it out together. So we experience that transformation. And they also have a, a heavier focus on multiplication. As they're not long-term groups, but they're a great training ground for new leaders. And, we really don't have a whole lot of these going yet, but I'd love to see those take off this year because I'd tell you, and my wife would say the same for her, over the last five or six years of our lives, these types of groups have really been the most impactful in our walk with the Lord. Also, we launched Rooted about two years ago, and what Rooted is is a 10-week small group experience that discusses the foundational things of our faith, and I love Rooted because it gets beyond just studying those things to actually living them out. And our next session kicks off on February 18th, I hope. We need some more facilitators to do some new groups, so I'll come back around to that in just a minute. We have interest groups, we have care groups. One of our best care groups meets here at the church on Sunday evenings, it's called The Refuge. It's for people who are walking through anxiety, depression, other emotional struggles, and it's just a great, safe place to walk through those things side by side and, and looking at scripture together. We also have short-term groups and studies. For instance, our next session of Financial Peace University kicks off in January. What FPU is, is a nine-week study on finances and how to develop a step-by-step -step plan towards biblical stewardship. Now, I don't have time here this morning, nor do you wanna hear all of it right now. So let me just encourage you to go out, if you want to know more about what kind of groups we have, go out to our groups page of our website. It's just efree.org groups, and you can get some explanations of what are there. Or, or better yet, reach out to me. My email will be up on the screen. Reach out to me because part of my role here is to help people connected, get connected, which I love to do. You know, having experienced the transforming power of being in biblical community, I love to help others experience that same thing. I love to discuss the different types of groups that we have and what might be the best fit for you. And again, I always encourage people to keep an open mind about the type of group you're looking for. Even if it seems like a misfit at first, you never know how God might use that. And again, if you've had a bad group experience, don't give up. Please try again, keep praying about it. God will direct you where he wants you. And I'm happy to help. You know, something else we're looking to do in the new year, because we know there are a lot of people out there who are looking to get connected and maybe have struggled with that, would be one of those kind of group connection events. Um, we'd be right out in the lobby. We'd have tables set up with different groups, different group leaders, so you could go out there and meet some of those folks, make some of those potential connections. We're aiming for February 11th with that, but again, that's kind of a TBD, depending on groups being willing to do that, new leaders stepping out, so we'll, we'll keep you in the loop on, and posted on that. Now, let me just say, we don't have all these different types of groups so that everyone is in three or four different groups. I'd like to echo something Adam said a couple weeks ago about the difference between rivers and deltas. You know, rivers are a little more directed and can get deeper, whereas deltas are an inch deep and a, or a mile wide and an inch deep, to use that old cliche, right? 
Your, your discipleship and your relationships actually struggle if you're spread too thin. So let me just encourage you to, to find a group or maybe two that you can really devote yourself to, including that ever so important life on lifetime outside of a study hour. Now we aim for four things in all of our groups, regardless of the type. We see these as four things that are essential to discipleship in groups. And those are growth, community, care, and service. And I could talk about this for an hour, but let me just summarize it here. Growth, first and foremost, means spiritual growth. You know, groups are, yes, where we should learn more about the Bible, but also where we should live it together, where we should experience that redemptive and transformative power of Jesus side by side with brothers and sisters in Christ. Growth also means multiplication. We should be living out that 2 Timothy 2.2 disciple making. And growth really is the driver of our groups. These other things are important, but if we miss out on this discipleship component, we're really kind of missing the point. Now, growth happens best in the context of relationships, so community is key. That's number two. You know, being truly known and knowing others, taking off that Sunday morning mask and getting real, being transparent, that's when Jesus can really get a hold of your heart and change you. And then the third thing is care. You know, groups are the front lines for care in our church. When someone's walking through something either difficult, you know, a personal health crisis, a death in the family, loss of a job, or something joyful, the, the birth of a child, those people in your group are the first ones that are there for you to walk through those things together, to, to do practical things like arrange meals, things like that. And if something gets too big for the group, of course, the church is here to help with that. But, you know, we often don't hear about many of these things because our groups are doing such a great job of caring for one another. And then finally, there's service. And to me, care and service are really indications that we're moving beyond you know, head knowledge, Bible study to practicality of living our faith. Your group members should be encouraged to identify spiritual gifts and put them into practice in the body of Christ to serve in the church and outside the church walls. And then groups are encouraged to get together and, and go and serve in some way. Now, another big part of my role here is training leaders, which I absolutely love to do. I love to help leaders realize just how important what they do is. Which, by the way, if you're a group leader, if you lead any type of group here, would you stand for a minute so we can acknowledge you? I really do appreciate it. The first service wouldn't stand up either. Stand up, I'll start pointing people out. You guys, you are the front lines of the church here. Thank you for what you do. I love to sit down with these folks and, and talk about, you know, how to lead better during group, also how to do more of that outside life-on-life -life discipleship that Jesus modeled, that Paul modeled, that I've experienced transformation through. I love talking about those four things and how do we do them best in each type of group and keep on the same page, keep rowing in the same direction. Now, something I'm seeing as we head into the new year is gonna be our need for new leaders, you know, particularly as we head toward uh, looking at doing a connection event in February, we're both gonna need existing groups willing to add people, but also some of you who maybe are feeling that twinge of, you know, I think I could do this to step up and, and lead a new group. And don't worry, just as I experience God putting people in my life to help with that, I now see that as a big part of my calling to, to be there and support people who think they wanna explore leading a new group. I'd love to hear from you. And in fact, let me just go ahead and invite you to our next group leader training. That's gonna be on Saturday, January 27th, that morning here at the church. We do a few of these a year. We try to make sure we're equipping our leaders regularly throughout the year. We'd love to see all of the existing group leaders there. Bring someone from your group that you recognize, hey, you could lead a group. Or if you're out there and you feel like this is something you'd like to explore, you're invited. Now, I don't wanna get too deep into the weeds here, so let me just encourage you. Come talk to me after the service. Email me later, reach out to your group leader, they know all about this, but we're gonna need you in the new year. 
Well, let me just wrap up my testimony now. I've been in vocational ministry now for about seven years, and one of the coolest experiences for me in that time was getting to go back to the church where I was first saved. I got to go back to Legacy Christian Church and serve on their staff, which you, you never could have convinced me of that when I was first walking through the doors there, first exploring the faith there, that Nick, hey, about 12 years from now, you're gonna come back here as a pastor. I'd have been like, no way. Don't you know what I've done? Don't you know who I am? But what Jesus has taught me in that time, <clears throat> what he continues to teach me is, Nick, do you know who I am? Do you know what an amazing transformation I can do in someone's life? when they surrender it over to me. Again, not that serving as a pastor is some pinnacle, but I can tell you confidently who the man I am today is radically different than who I was 16 years ago, all because of Jesus. By the way, some of you may be wondering, since I mentioned my struggle with alcohol earlier, as of tomorrow, which I must have this New Year's resolution thing, right? But I can confidently tell you I've only ever kept two. Um, Getting back to church and finding Jesus and giving up alcohol. As of tomorrow, I will have been sober for 11 years. Yeah. I couldn't couldn't have imagined that pre-Jesus. And I mentioned that, you know, alcoholism is a generational thing in my family as well, but you know what else is now? Faith. Following the Lord, being redeemed and transformed by Jesus. We have a lot of stories like that now. And now I'm trying to pass that along to my kids in a more intentional way. And to everybody else, I would love for people to experience this transformation that Jesus has given me and let you know it's all by God's amazing grace through the sacrifice of Jesus and thanks to him putting people in my life who intentionally discipled me, people who lived out this verse, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Well, let me just close this morning by asking you all one question. Who are you following? Who are you doing life with? Are they helping you look more like Jesus? Are they helping you draw nearer to Jesus? And if not, what needs to change in the new year? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the redemption we have in Jesus. This is such a joyful time of year where we get to remember that you sent your son into a messy world, into the messes that we created ourselves but he didn't stay a baby in that manger. He grew to be a man, Emmanuel, who walked with us, who showed us how to live, who taught us, and and more than anything, went to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, to redeem us. Thank you for that. I also thank you for the transformation we have in Jesus, the power of your Holy Spirit to, to change us. We're not the same. Once we give our life over to you, the old is gone, the new has come. We continue to grow by the power of your spirit, by the power of your word, by the power of the body of Christ around us. People who invest and discipled me, I thank you for them, Lord, and I wanna pass that on now. And I pray we have that all across our church, this multiplying disciple-making, Lord. For those who right now need to find someone to follow, who need that, that mentor, that disciple, or that Paul in their life, I pray that you would point them to that person. And for those of us who, who need to be a Paul now to, to invite someone else along, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to that, that we'd see just all kinds of discipleship and disciple making happening at first free in the new year, all powered by your spirit, by your word, by Jesus' sacrifice, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.